This is a good day. This has been a wonderful morning. It's been a wonderful weekend, actually, in thinking of these things and anticipating these things and looking up, looking forward to these things. However, we do know that outside of these doors that we live in some quite heavy times. And seemingly, they're not getting any, any lighter from economic woes, inflation, gas prices, housing shortages and prices, raising interest rates, shortages in the workforce, shortages at stores, the ongoing war in Ukraine, the polarization of our, of our culture, people against people, and so much more. Two weeks ago, we saw the horrific shooting targeting very strategically the grocery store in Buffalo. And then this week that came out of Texas on Tuesday afternoon is still quite difficult to bear. Senseless and heinous violence and in such a way that we can't even use the word unprecedented anymore. Because now it's becoming unfortunately common. Our society is broken, it is sick, it is failing, it is falling apart, it is fractured in ways that is, conf that is confounding and confusing and, and shocking, and that's just, a, just for a lack of a better word, a better term. One commentator I heard this week say that the soul of America is rotten. And what always makes these situations worse, of course, we know, is the, politi the politicization of these things. Gun control, better mental health, safer schools, etc. But no one really wants to deal with the, the real root, the problem. And the reason is, is because that's just too uncomfortable. It's too, un it's too uncomfortable. The decay, the rot in our society... That, is that has been caused by this complete unshackling from reality, from what is true, from our Creator and from our Creator's Word. Gender and sexuality has been turned completely upside down. Truth is no longer tolerable. The demand for continued abortion and infanticide and almost the complete destruction of the family. And I say that last one with... The statistic of saying that now in America, 40% of all children born today are to unmarried parents, which is up 28% from 1990. Something has gone wrong. In particular, young men are very troubled, as we see. They never grow up into maturity and manhood, and because examples we see of manhood and fatherhood just rarely exist anymore. The examples that culture puts forth are either violent or abusive men or, or they're feminine or they're just lazy morons. With the family broken as it is and with now almost all, all masculinity labeled as toxic and with little to no examples of mature biblical masculinity, what are boys to do? What's lacking is we hear is strong men, 
Strong men grounded in truth. Strong men that, that know the Bible. Strong men that teach the Bible to their families and to their children and to those in their church. Now, I don't start this sermon this morning in this way because it's not the purpose of the sermon and it's not to, to be a downer or to drag us down into a pit of despair because, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that today, even in 2022, with all the decay around us, that there still is hope. And what we have done this morning and will continue to do is representative of that hope. What we have seen today, what you have witnessed today, is rare. A 21-year-old young man who is as committed to the gospel ministry as Joshua is, being ordained. And maybe it shouldn't be. The church should always be raising up its next leaders and encouraging those to do so. The Apostle Paul understood the joy of this day. The Apostle Paul saw, enjoyed this day as he understands the setting apart ministry of young men that he has discipled and, and then establishing them and putting them in the churches. In 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, his disciple, his friend, his, his brother in Christ, who, who is now pastoring in the beloved church in Ephesus. And he writes these words to encourage and to instruct Timothy to rightly order the church, to put these things in order, right? The two offices, put these things in order, ordain and set apart uh, uh, godly men and to, for him to remain steadfast and to be strong against false teaching. But most importantly, his encouragement was to Timothy was to continue to strive to be faithful in the gospel. Let's look to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and let's start reading in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bo bo bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. 
And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. The idea of ordination to the gospel ministry isn't something that is necessarily explicitly commanded within Scripture like we see the command to have the Lord's Supper, but it is certainly implicit. Throughout the Old Testament, you see examples of priests who were set apart for the work of serving the people, like the ordination of, of, uh, that we saw in Levitic, Leviticus chapter 8 this morning. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, the disciples, as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, they chose to fill the 12th position of the apostle that was vacated by Judas by choosing from among them who was qualified and who had been with them since the beginning. And they chose Matthias. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles set apart seven qualified men to do the work of the ministry in order to meet the needs of the growing church in Jerusalem so that the apostles would continue to be able to de uh, devote themselves to the teaching of God's word and to prayer. The church then chose seven men, and then they prayed for them, and the apostles laid their hands on them. In Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch was called by the Holy Spirit to set apart Barnabas and Paul and to send them out. And so the church fasted, and they prayed for them, and they laid hands on them, and then they sent them out. In our passage this morning, in verse 14, Paul is exhorting Timothy to not neglect the gift that was given to him, and he encourages him to remain faithful to the ministry and to the ministry of preaching and teaching God's word that he is called into by reminding him of when the elders had laid hands on him. This is what we call ordination, and this is what we have done today. By these examples and the precedents, precedents when a man is qualified and is called to go into the gospel ministry, the elders of the church are to recognize that calling, that giftedness and quality, and then ordain them and set them apart for the gospel ministry. By the testing, the laying on hands, the prayer, these things are all important and, and they're necessary and they're good for us. But this isn't all that there is. The calling into the ministry of the Lord, Lord willing, is for a lifetime. And that lifetime of serving the church is not always as exciting and rewarding and joyful as it feels today. Believe it or not, the church is made up of sinners. All of us. And sometimes they don't always want to follow the shepherd or the shepherd's teaching from God's word. Believe it or not, pastors have bad days. Pastors make mistakes. Pastors are sinners. And our hearts and our minds can be tempted to fear and to be weary. Yet what we see in this passage this morning from these 11 commands to Timothy is that he is to endure well so that he will finish the race that is set before him. And what I am calling in this sermon, persevering after ordination, 
I have summed up those 11 commands into only four. See, don't you feel better now? So that he may persevere, and so that we may persevere in being godly, and being an example, being devoted, and being cautious. First, to be godly, brother. If you look at verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. All the teachings of the gospel from chapter 1, the necessity of prayer within the church, chapter 2, the qualifications of the two offices in the church in chapter 3, and then the warning of false teachers in chapter 4. Those are the things that are good. You would be a good servant if you're continually laying these things out before the church. In fact, this is what a good servant of Jesus Christ does primarily because this is what you have been trained to do by the master himself who came not to be served, but to serve. He himself was the good servant. In verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself, rather train yourself for godliness. For while the body training is some value, God, godliness is a value of every way, as it holds promise for the life and also for the life to come. The positive command in verse 7 is to train yourself in godliness. To train yourself, to discipline yourself, which is the first point. Be godly. The negative command in verse 7 pretty much means this, is that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve frivolous things of the world or, or frivolous, ridiculous things of Christian culture that are full, completely irrelevant and silly and mythical. Being godly is knowing how to discern what is not helpful in the building up of the church and your building up of yourself and then removing them and then not having anything to do with them. Instead, the second master is godliness, which is what we are to set ourselves toward. That's the, the training ourselves to, to godliness. Godliness is to reflect the character of God, our Father. We reflect the image of our Father as we were created to do so. We image His attributes, His, uh, His character, and godliness is foundational to the Christian character and is to be the aim of all Christian living. It's Christ-likeness. Before we, you were in Christ, it was I have no room, and I have no thoughts for God. But now, as the psalmist says in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I like what Oswald Sanders says about godliness. He says, spiritual ends can only be achieved by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. That's godliness. Godliness is given to us by Christ, as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 tells us. Yet in 1 Timothy 6, 11, brothers, he says, we are to pursue godliness. Godliness isn't something that just happens overnight, but it is a, it's rather a pursuit of discipline and exercise through spiritual self-discipline that 
happens over a lifetime. And as verse 8 illustrates this point so well in the comparison to the physical body training, to, to spiritual training, physical training is, is good, and it's good in so many ways, and those things should not be ne neglected. But in comparison, as he says, in comparison, spiritual training is helpful in every way. Because godliness does what? He says, holds the promise for the present life and for the life to come. Spirit, so physical training is, holds some present life, but spiritual training holds the promise to this life now and to the life to come. Now, Paul doesn't give us all the details of what this kind of exercise looks like. He doesn't come into the gym like, I wish Mr. Crockett was here this morning, and he goes in the gym and he tells his clients what to do, how to do it, and this is how you'll, you train yourself. And Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us that, how to do that, but however, we have context. And the context of, of, of this says that we nourish ourselves, as, as in the same way that we nourish ourselves, we exercise in the same thing, and that is in God's Word. And we strengthen godliness in God's word. Brother, godless myths will not strengthen you or the church, but they will only bring atrophy. But the word of God, the full counsel, as you have been charged this morning, is the most godly book ever written. And there's good reason for that. Because it was fully inspired by God. And it's his revelation to us that we would know him. So then it is right to say then to become more and more familiar with this book is to become more godly yourself. And so right and self-evident as verse 8 says, 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 he says in verse 9 that this is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. So not half acceptance, not halfway in, but, but fully in, completely leaning in to God's word. Godliness of the preacher then validates that message. It helps to validate that message that we proclaim, which is what verse 10 is telling us, is that as we strive and we toil to preach and proclaim the gospel, because it's only in him that we have set our hope in the living God, Christ our Savior, then godliness fuels the soul of the pastor and the preacher, as well as any Christian here this morning. So, brother, here we see, number one, preserving after ordination is a life that is fully devoted to pursuing godliness. And second, he tells us to be an example. To be an example of what? Well, we know already. Godliness. Be an example of godliness. So be godly, but now you are to lead the way in godliness. Look at verse 12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in impurity. Now this is a, a, a favorite verse of, of student ministries all over the world because it has the word youth in it. 
right? And it, and it validates the idea of youth ministry, which is great, which is fine. It has its place, but certainly it can apply to students and to what we would call youth. But in context, Timothy is already in his 30s when Paul wrote this letter. Now, that's still pretty relatively long, young. Now that I'm in my 40s, I looked at 30-year-olds and say, young whippersnappers. But why would anyone look down on someone who is younger than them? The older I get, the more obvious it becomes that I have certainly given older saints plenty of reason to look down on me. Let me give you two reasons why, brother, as a youth, you can be despised. Number one, kind of can't help this one. When you are young, you just don't have long established credit and credibility that would earn the respect of others. If you go to take out a loan from a bank, they'll want to know your job history. They'll want to know your credit score, and they'll want to know how long you've been using credit. And if all of that checks out good and you are reliable of paying your bills and paying your debt on time, then, and over a period of time, then you will probably get the loan. And in the same way, established character over decades of faithful pastoral ministry gives credibility. And I have to say to that first point there, God bless the churches that take young men like me and young men like Joshua one day and says, come preach here and we'll take your terrible preaching for a while and we'll help you get trained and we'll love you and we'll serve you. Can't help that first one, brother, but this one you can Second, youthfulness, can, youthfulness in itself can undermine your qualifications. Youthfulness generally is marked by uncontrolled passions, a quick to emotion, to arrogance and pride, self-indulgence and selfishness, and also to an unteachable spirit. Our culture has created a whole new age group called adolescence where age group between 13 and 24, and that is still nebulous, of those who are still acting like children, but not adults. And generally that term adolescence is used and thrown out there to give an excuse for foolish behaviors. However, youth, being young in itself, does not disqualify a person unless they let it undermine them. What Paul is saying here, as he's telling Timothy, as he's telling us today, and brother, he's telling you today through God's word, is to blow that norm out of the water. Continually. Instead of needing the excuse of youthfulness, be the example in your youth. I've already said in the beginning that this is a rare thing for a young man who is younger than Timothy to be ordained in the gospel ministry. Not many churches have the joy in doing this. But Paul himself was not afraid to say in the scriptures that he himself is setting the example. 
I mean, often we hear him say, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so even in your youth, you are to set an example for the saints. And he gives five areas in which you are to set an example for the saints. And the first one is this, is speech. Words and tone, if they are loose, will throw gas on the flame. The Bible is clear that a man's speech reflects what is in his heart. Apply that, brother, as we all apply that. The elders set the tone with their language and their words to the church. So take every thought and every word captive. Second, be an example in conduct. The, the elders, as Peter tells us, is an example to the church of righteous living who manifests biblical convictions in every area of his life. Brothers, do not be, brother, do not be fast and loose with the biblical convictions and morality, but set them and hold them. And that goes for all of us, that our conduct speaks volumes of what we believe about a holy God. And third, be an example in love. And this, this doesn't necessarily mean the, the sentimental love or emotions only because that is not all that the Bible says about love. Biblical love is self-sacrificial, as Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone who lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus not only said it, but he demonstrated it. He demonstrated his love. But God showed his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Pastored shepherd like Christ, we are fully devoted, giving time and emotion and thought and heart to the church for the glory of God. Love the church, brother as much as you can, as Christ loved the church. Fourth, be an example of the faith. This isn't saving faith, but in faithfulness, which is an unswerving commitment to the gospel and to truth. Lead with courage through the storms and trials that may come upon you and upon the church. And lastly, be an example in purity. Nothing ravages a ministry as sexual immorality and impurity. The qualification of an elder is to be a one-woman man who is fully devoted to his wife, and yet this seems to be the area where leaders are most vulnerable. Brother, and for all of us, set clear, biblical, and appropriate boundaries to persevere, after ordination, then, is to be an example in those areas. Third, be devoted. There are many things that we can be devoted to. Many of us are devoted to, to hobbies or to sport. You're devoted to, to exercise or devoted to hunting or fishing or devoted to your, your jobs. We all should be devoted to our friends and to our family and our children and our spouses without question, and to the church. And those are good, and those are biblical, and those are God-glorifying. But, but here the devotion of an elder and a pastor, 
excuse me, is a particular devotion to the Word of God. You see in verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift to which you have been given to you by the prophecy of the council elders who laid hands on you, but practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you say, may see all, so that they may see all your progress. Again, there are many things that a pastor has to be devoted to. Godliness, a wife, children, leading the church well. But the one that Paul singles out here is that a pastor and elder is to be fully devoted to the Word of God. He says here, in practice, the elders are to always have God's Word before the forefront of the church when it gathers. Publicly reading it. He says, don't neglect it. Keep reading God's Word before the church. But also, he says, in exhortation. That is, in preaching and in teaching, which are two different things. That In your teaching and in your preaching, you're always putting forth God's word first and not yourself. What shapes the church into the church is not a pastor's personality. It is not charisma. It's not a music program. It's not technology or some other cultural medium. Those things do shape the church, but the Bible says what is to, what is to shape the church to the glory of God is God's word through faithful preaching. That's primary. And if you have not the primary, you have almost nothing. Through faithful preaching, through exposition of God's word, week in and week out. Brother, when you become a pastor and an elder, be very committed to that. That although everything else in the church might fail, the music may be terrible. The fellowship meals may be lacking. The children's ministry may be hog wild. The youth may be insane. But may the preaching of God's word, as long as you are there, never fail. Never fail. Always challenge the church to apply the truth to their lives. Always challenge them to be obedient. Learn to paint like an, like an artist the glories and excellencies of Christ to the body of Christ, that they may see him and not you. Always preach the gospel, the repentance and forgiveness that comes through Christ, that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Always unpack the full counsel of God's word, again, because it's not about a man, but it's about the word of God. That is your highest calling. And this work in itself, it will consume most of your week. Every week, it'll consume your week. It'll consume your mind. Just moments after you sit down from preaching, your mind will instantly go to the next text. It will consume you. But let that, that, that consuming be something that, that, that leads you in faithfully proclaiming and being devoted to God's word to the church. And he encourages Timothy from verse 14 saying, Do not neglect that preaching. 
Don't neglect that, that teaching. Because if to do so would, would deny the gift that the Spirit has given you to teach and to preach. And be encouraged, brother, because of the counsel of elders who laid hands on you and the church, this church, who has sent you out. Like one of our children. You're not a child. But like one of our children, like an arrow in the quiver, we fire you out, like Proverbs says. Remember this day. Let it be a pillar in your mind of God's faithfulness and his goodness to you and to encourage you in the hard times and to remember the gift and the calling that God has placed on your life to preach the greatest news of all time. And even when you seem seems to be alone and you may be tired, what a great opportunity that you have to be a herald to the sovereign king and the glorious son of God. And that you have the blessed, the blessed position to have a front seat, a front row seat to the greatest of all miracles. To watch God's word transform people's hearts. So like in verse 15 says, put them into practice. Immerse yourself in them. Devote yourself to the word of God for the good of your own heart, for the good of your family, and for the good of the church. And lastly, brother, verse 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. To me, that verse sounds a lot like, be cautious. It sounds a lot like be careful and, and be warned and to, to keep a close watch on yourself, right? He said that means to, to stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. Keep a stern eye not only around you but also a stern eye on yourself. Do not be naive of your own potential corruption and your own potential downfall. The desires for fame, the desire to be liked, the desire to be approved by man, the desire to be, by, to be known by man, the de desire for ease and the desire for comfort. Keep a close watch on yourself and keep a close watch on your teaching. Continue in humbleness and ask, ask for and receive critique, brother. Surround yourself with other brothers that will love you with the truth. That will check your blind spots. So persist in these things. Don't quit. Don't grow weary in doing good, but preach the gospel. Love the church, exalt Christ alone, and be strong and courageous, for we know the Lord is with us. You will grow weary, you will get tired, and that is precisely when you will want to check out. Thoughts of inadequacies will come, thoughts of being a failure, guilt, shame, I should have done this better will come. The flesh is weak, but more importantly, the spirit is willing. Pray. Continue to press in. 
persevering brother after this ordination, be cautious. Church, I hope you see that the application of this sermon is not just for our brother, but for you as well. For all those who are in Christ, are you, are you not also called to godliness? If not, go back a couple weeks ago to the sermon, and I had a point in there that said if you are in Christ, you are to pursue godliness. God's word tells us to pursue godliness. Are we not called to, in appropriate ways, to be an example to one another in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love? Are we not all called to be devoted to God's word? Or is that just for the preacher? Oh, I've heard that before. And are we all not called to be cautious and to keep a watch, a watchful eye on the wall around us and around each other? To keep a watchful eye on what seeks to breach our souls with temptation. The sermon certainly specifically applies to our brother, but absolutely applies to every one of us. However, as I close, I want to say, brother, we want you to know that we love you, and we are looking forward to see how the Lord will use you for his glory. You may not always remember my words this morning, but remember God's word, that you may persevere in Christ and run the race well that is set before you. In the years to come, you may not hear us cheering you on throughout your ministry, but we will be. And when we join that great cloud of witnesses, we will still be cheering you on. And since that, brothers and sisters, we, all of God's people say, and amen.